So where we are in the letter <coughs> is a spot where Paul, uh, he's taking a kind of a personal turn in the letter now and um, kind of going back to addressing Timothy directly. That's what we can see there in verse 14. Uh, it gets, you can sense the personal note in it. It's um, not speaking generally about the elders and deacons. Uh, he's turning and he's speaking right to Timothy and saying, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that. And at this point he gives us a pretty good window into why he's given the instructions that he has and I think why he'll go on to give the instructions that he will do. It's so that people would know how to conduct themselves in God's household. And so I think Paul's first point here, or what he's, what he's getting at, or I think what is useful for us, is uh, the importance of the church. He says, this is writing these things so you'd know how to conduct yourselves in God's house, which is the church of the living God. And that church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church has got a really important role. And straight off the bat, I just want to ask the question, do we see this? Do we see this about ourselves? That the life of the church, Paul can say, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And we are God's house. There's, it's like temple language, family language. And this is the place that supports and upholds the truth. Truth is here among us. And what might be striking is that Paul says that he wants to instruct the church in how we conduct ourselves. And I think the reason he does that is because the, I've said it before in previous sermons, is because the way that the church functions is a witness. We ourselves, the life of the church, our priorities, our order, our character, uh, is a witness to the truth, and therefore uh, it's, it's a case that our silent lives speak. For example, prayer, priority of prayer, shows our dependence on God, shows the sufficiency of God. Our order upholds creation, the order in creation, God's wisdom in creation, God's design, how we conduct ourselves with distinction between male and female. Uh, and our character, walking in holiness, uh, sorry, our character shows uh, the holiness of our God as we walk in holiness. And the logic of what Paul's saying is that the whole of the Christian life and the way that we conduct ourselves is meant to adorn the gospel. It's a case that everything that we do is meant to be a way of saying, hallowed be your name. 
about Jesus. <clears throat> and that's Paul's uh, first aim there in verses 14 to 15. He gives us a clue as to why he's written the letter to Timothy. And then he goes on, probably because of the word truth at the end of verse 15, uh, to expound a little bit, or maybe not expound, summarise uh, the truth, a kernel, a nugget of truth uh, that the church contains. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. This is something of a summary of what the church confesses. So, if we are inclined to think that the life of the church is only about how we conduct ourselves, we miss out on this half. Such as that saying, uh, speak the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. It is right insofar as what it's trying to communicate, that might be verses 14 and 15, but verses 16, a uh, verse 16 would say, well, it's necessary that we have words as well. And the two go together. The one supports the other. Our conduct supports the truth. But we are people that contain the truth. So I'll just quickly go through these six lines here and just unpack what they, what they mean. What does he mean here in this little summary. First, first one, he appeared in the flesh, I think is reference to the incarnation. Um, and so we remember that the uh, beginning of the faith, uh, as it were, is uh, the coming of the Son in human flesh. Uh, the second line, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, I think this speaks about the resurrection. Uh, it's a similar idea to what we find in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 uh, that says that um, Jesus was uh, declared to be the Son of God with power uh, by his resurrection from the dead. It's the case that uh, the resurrection of Jesus was his, the vindication of his life um, and as he was uh, raised, it's God's way of saying that he is his chosen king. <clears throat> the third one, was seen by angels, uh, speaks, I think, about uh, the witness of the angels at the empty tomb. It's the angels often that will, uh, in the gospel stories, that will be there and witness to the resurrection. The, uh, the fourth line was preached among the nations, uh, I think this is um, capturing uh, the fact that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. So from the very beginning, um, uh, God's plan has been that uh, through Abraham, he would bless all the nations. And so that's why I think this is an important line to, um, to keep in here, uh, was preached among the nations. It might seem a little bit odd that it says he was preached among the nations, 
Because can Paul say that? He was preached among the nations. So early on in the life of the church, how many nations? How far did it go? I think he's saying a similar thing to what he says in Colossians chapter 1 when he says, uh, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Or, further down in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, if you continue in your faith, oh no, sorry, he says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And clearly Paul is not so silly as to think that every single creature uh, under heaven has already heard uh, the gospel, um, if what we mean by that is a one-to-one or uh, sitting in an assembly and hearing the gospel preached. Uh, Rather, I think when it says that he was preached among the nations, there was a sufficient reality happening uh, even in Jerusalem that his resurrection, um, uh, uh, by his resurrection and by those early proclamations of Mary and then others saying that Jesus is risen, um, was the begin was the beginning, but sufficiently. Um, uh, the point is that the. It didn't have to cover the extent, it's that the reality has already started. Uh, And so that's why he can speak it this way. The fifth line was believed on in the world. Captures uh, the the importance of faith uh, in the confession. Faith, as we know, being critical to justification and receiving Jesus. And then the final line, he was taken up in glory. This, uh, I think, is uh, speaking about the ascension and the seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So in Hebrews chapter 1, it can say, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, that was on the earth, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And as we know very well, that that's the pattern of Jesus' life, that he was raised, but then that he ascended to take his place at the Father's right hand to rule from there. So as we step back from these six lines, this very short poem or whatever it is, a creedal statement, um, we can immediately see that the mystery from which true godliness springs is uh, centred, focused on Jesus. It's all about Jesus and about his story. Uh, Jesus is the picture of godliness. Uh, it also, as you, um, as we can see from this little summary, really captures what Christians have believed and taught for so long. It's that shape. He, he, it begins with his coming down and taking on flesh. He appeared 
in the flesh. With his death, which is implied in the fact that he's been vindicated by the Spirit. So he comes from pre-incarnate down to taking on flesh through the death and resurrection to be seen in the world, preached, um, and these two components that are necessary for salvation that people would hear, preach, and people would believe. And then he's ascended back to glory. So it's that U-shape of the life of Jesus. It's the confession, the mystery, is centred on Jesus. It's got that U-shape. We can also notice the scope of the little statement. It starts with incarnation, ends with ascension. It has uh, flesh and glory. It deals with heavenly beings and nations and the world. It's a very broad statement. And lastly, we can see that it is a something in these early days of the church of a creed or a confession or some body of teaching, some summary uh, which captures uh, the mystery of what we believe. And I think there's a precedent there for us uh, in writing um, doctrinal statements, in having summaries of the faith that we can get a handle on. Uh, and we could do well to think about why Paul has chosen these words. And I think I just want to come back to something I've already just said now, which is how Jesus-focused it is. He's really drawing attention to Jesus. It's about his life, his death, his resurrection, him being preached. It's about the extent of his rule and about him being in glory now. And long meditation on these realities would do us well. Or as Paul says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. <clears throat> and so as we pull back in this first little um, section of the sermon, um, I just want to highlight here that Paul is talking about, I think the idea for us to grasp is the importance of the church in how we conduct ourselves, both individually and corporately, and the confession that we hold on to, which is focused on Jesus, because uh, we are the church of the living God, we are his household, and a pillar and a foundation of the truth. And so Paul, writing to Timothy, can talk about these things extraordinary statements, um, extraordinary truths that are connected to our lives, and how important it is then that Timothy be instructed correctly. The pillar and foundation of the truth. <clears throat> and needing to be told that is all the more important when we consider Second point, the danger to the church. That's where Paul goes there in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. 
Where it says later times, we might be inclined to think uh, that he had now in view. So, yeah, I guess the question is later to what? Later to what he isn't then, so maybe where we are, or later to us, is it still to come for us? I think the correct way to read it is um, based on a wider reading of the New Testament and Paul's understanding of the end times, is that Paul actually thinks that he's in the later times. That's where he is now. Uh, and so when he says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, he's saying, it's a, it's a way of saying, in the days that we are in now, uh, this will happen. Some will abandon the faith. And even within 1 Timothy, we can see that leaving the faith is a concern for Paul. And it's a concern that Timothy doesn't do it and that the people around him don't do it. Uh, he's already said in chapter 1, um, encourages Timothy to hold on to the faith and a good conscience because he says some have rejected these and have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. And he ends the letter by saying, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Paul's aware of the context in which he lives and he's aware that people will turn away from the faith. When it says the Spirit clearly says, uh, it could be that he's referring to the Old, uh, the Old Testament and things that the Old Testament has spoken about the, uh, the end times. It could be that he's um, picking up on what Jesus has already said in Matthew when he speaks about um, many, the love of many will grow cold. Or it could be that he is speaking with apostolic authority. I'm more inclined to the first sort. And the way that it functions uh, there is a warning to Timothy. I think that he's included in that. He needs to watch out for himself. He's told later on in chapter 4, at the end, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's important not just for the congregation, as though the sum might be people that have already abandoned, people that he's taken care of. But as ministers, we need to make sure that we ourselves, after preaching the gospel, actually enter the kingdom. And not abandon the faith. So, we're in the last days. The Spirit has said some will abandon the faith. We need to sober up. And we get some clues as to what's going wrong. It says, follow, abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. Now that word, if you're reading, uh, if anybody's looking at it, nobody is. If, if anybody on the recording is listening to an ESV, reading an ESV, um, you might see uh, a different word. This word here... Um, appears in a couple of other places. And it's the idea of paying attention to. So it appeared earlier on when he says, um, uh, at the beginning of the letter, he says not to chap uh, chapter 1 verse 4, 
um, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths. You see? That's the same word there. Devote themselves. And he says... Um, Uh, chapter 4, verse 13, he uses the same word here and says, um, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And overall, in the letter of Timothy, there are, you can either give yourself to and concentrate on and listen to myths, old wives' tales, genealogies, speculations, and they end up, that's, that's dangerous when you start to do that. Or you can do what Paul's telling Timothy. Pay attention to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. And don't listen to those other things. And I guess what I'm saying here is there's a wrong heeding by these people. They're listening in the wrong direction and what happens is their feet follow their ears. And the lesson for us, I think, is to consider for ourselves, what are we listening to? What are we giving ourselves to? What are we paying attention to, devoting to, following? Is it going to be something that is slowly drifting us away? Is it going to be something that's going to lead us down the wrong way? Or is it going to be something that's building us up in our faith? Now, these teachings... What happens is they abandon the faith and they give themselves, surprisingly, to deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, before we get into verse 2, I want to pause here and say a little bit of something about the spirits and the demons because I think we live in a time where... Um, We don't think much about um, invisible spiritual beings that hold power in the universe. It might be that the um, modern scientific method um, has got us uh, kind of numbed to this idea or has, um, uh, has written it off uh, in advance, so that it, um, uh, so that we don't think about it, and because we don't then think about it, we just kind of slowly forget about it. Uh, but let's not forget that uh, modern scientific theory smuggles in its own metaphysics um, in order to advance its uh, work. We can't escape having a view of what there is in the world, what exists in the world. Um, and one of the things that exists in the world is deceiving spirits and demons. And they've got power in the world. The Bible actually says a lot about spiritual warfare. In Ephesians chapter 6, <coughs> I'm just going to flick that so I get, get, it, get it accurate, say it accurately. He says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right? And then he goes on, therefore, put on the whole armour of God and take up the sword of the Spirit. Quench. Uh, take up the shield of faith which we, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, or 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 8, he talks about the devil prowling around like a roaring lion seeking somebody that he can devour. We need to wake up to the reality of the spiritual warfare and the beings in the world that uh, have influence over people's hearts and minds. Uh, because it's not just the case that all that exists is matter and motion. Now, I think there's a, another little surprise here, and that is, in verse 2, how such teachings happen. Because we might think teachings of demons and deceiving spirits, oh, that's going to happen at 1 o'clock in the morning when something scary happens, when you get woken up by a, a, a rattling window or something, right? But it's not. It says here, such teachings come through people. They come through people. And I think this, you know, in a way, demystifies the idea of deceiving spirits and demons. I think we can have it a little bit too mystical, when actually it could be the case that the, the teaching of the demons is coming through to us by somebody who looks very clean, who looks very ordered. But they've got a wrong view of creation, and we'll see what else they're getting wrong in a minute. And actually, the, the work of the demons is more about ideas. They've got the wrong ideas are getting taught, not just big scary monsters. One John, who's got a lot to say about spirits in chapter 4 and earlier, he says that the one who denies that Jesus is the Son of God, this is the Antichrist. And he tells, him in and he tells us in chapter 4 of a way to work out who the, right, um, who the Spirit of God is when the Spirit of God is speaking and when it's not the Spirit of God. And it, the confession is a key part of that. So these teachings of demons actually come through people and these people are hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So their consciences are damaged in some way, They're not, their conscience is not working properly, and there's something to hypocrisy and lying. And I wonder if actually the way that it works um, is this particular, these particular people, um, when you... Uh, when you continually suppress your conscience, uh, you end up damaging it, and that is a classic hypocrite. 
when they don't have when we don't have for ourselves that sensitivity to recognise, oh actually no, I do keep doing that thing. So whatever you know, you know when you keep doing a thing and then you keep saying, No, no, I'm not really doing that, I'm not really doing that thing, I'm not really doing that thing, and eventually you've convinced yourself you don't have a problem, you're you're no longer being convicted. That's ripe ground for being a hypocrite. Um, because you're not going to see for yourself the way that you're actually living. So their consciences are seared and it leads to, uh, I think, a false piety. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Okay, so the focus is on food and marriage. I think their focus here is on visible things, on earthly pleasures, and they're external. Um, It's also what they've got wrong is I think they've got a wrong view of creation. We saw that earlier in... um, um, in chapter 2, the creation, there's creation stories in the background where Paul's talking about Adam and Eve. Um, and we see it also in chapter 6, where, um, chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But this is the key line who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So we can see there there's the thread running through the letter uh, that it's important. Um, an important view of creation. And the thing is, they're saying that you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat certain foods and you shouldn't get married. Now, how can I capture what they're getting wrong? We are told to avoid sexual immorality. Right? And there are points in the Bible where they're told to avoid food that's been sacrificed to idols. So there's a sense that abstinence from some things is right. There are certain things that we should avoid. I don't think it's just a carte blanche, um, you know, nothing's to be rejected, completely unqualified, if it's received with thanksgiving. Right? But I think what's happened is they've taken something the, 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 the things that are avoided, the food sacrifice to idols or the sexual immorality, that's the good creation, but the perversion of it. You see, both have been perverted. That's what's to be avoided. They've taken it a step further and they're saying that the thing itself is to be avoided. And that, I think, is a, a way in, a clue for us to work out what they're getting wrong, which leads to a kind of asceticism, which is a kind of self-denial, but it's a self-denial in an attempt to be pious, to be holy. And I think the the, the end place that you get, or the problem that it creates, because then we have to ask the question, how is this gonna lead to abandoning the faith, you see? And I think the reason why this is a road to abandoning the faith 
is because it's moving away from a proper understanding of what sanctifies us or what makes a thing holy, what consecrates us. Because that's the concern in verse 5. It's not to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. It's consecrated by God's means, in God's ways. Uh, and it, so it could be the case that they're looking for a kind of holiness through abstinence and starting to go down that road is the beginning of self-righteousness expressed in hypocrisy and eventually a denial of the faith. And hence, why Paul wants to say at the beginning of the letter, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so remember that grace is at the centre of the life of the church. So this final point is there's a danger to the church. It comes through particular people who have a faulty view of creation, who may look pious, but it's actually teachings of demons. And by focusing on that teaching, there's the danger of falling away. And my duty, or at least Timothy's, Verse 6, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that you would continue to give us understanding. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to the truth of the time that we live in. Uh, and to a greater understanding of the mystery of godliness that we confess um, and help us to live uh, holy lives and conduct ourselves in a way uh, that shows off the goodness of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.